good morning, gang. How are we doing? Some of you are like aware that it's morning, you're awake, you're caffeinated. How did everybody sleep last night? Uh, yeah, bad up there, not so good. I heard it was managed chaos in some of the rooms last night. Uh, yeah, more or less. Well, we made it through, so welcome to day two of camp. Uh, good to be with you guys again, so hopefully you are ready for this morning. So I'm ready to move my mic stand, or here we go. Fabulous. All right, well, if you remember from a long, long time ago last night, we, uh, we ventured through a lot of scripture. We started in Romans chapter 1, and we ended in chapter 3, and we heard last night some pretty devastating news. Uh, we watched as God, through the hand of Paul, talked about who mankind is apart from him, that through the means of creation and both the things that we see and the conscience that God has put within us, we have a knowledge of God. But what mankind has done throughout the ages, like a beach ball, has held that knowledge of God underneath the water. They have suppressed the truth that they know to be true. And as a result, we are rightly condemned before a holy God. We saw last night that as Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 10, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one out there that has ever lived that could bring a righteousness in and of themselves before the Lord. And the greatest question that Paul seeks to answer in this book of Romans is then how do we do that? Knowing that there's nothing that we could bring to the Lord, that there's nothing that we have in and of ourselves, and what we desperately need is this thing. We need a righteousness, but it's not going to come from within us. It's not going to come from us. What we need is a God who is so loving, who is so good, and is so concerned about his creation being in the state of separation from him that he will take the first step, that he will move towards us. And thankfully, that is exactly what we're going to see this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Last night, we skipped rocks. We moved through two and a half chapters uh, of text. Today, we're going to scuba dive. We're going to go deep in a couple different verses, chapter 1, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll finish together in verse 28. And what I want to show you this morning is a text that one of my professors one time said, if your house is on fire and you could steal one page out of your Bible, these verses in chapter 3, verse 21 through 28 is the page that you would rip out of your Bible. Because in these words that Paul expresses to us, it is the theme of the entire Bible. If you get this text, you understand what the entire Bible, cover to cover, Genesis all the way through Revelation, is ultimately about. And if you'll notice, maybe in the Bible that you're reading out of, verse 21 all the way through verse 25 is, in fact, just one sentence, a sentence that will absolutely change your life if you allow it to do that. But the question, again, that's being asked is, if man cannot save himself, if the law that God gave cannot save man, then how in the world does man, does woman, how does mankind become saved? And in verses 21 and following, Paul is going to answer that question. And he's returning to this idea that we saw yesterday, the theme of the entire book of Romans. Paul's going to have this in mind as he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Uh, the gospel of the righteousness of God has now been manifested to all who believe. And let's watch him run with that idea now in verse 21 and following. And it says this in chapter 3, verse 21. By the way, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. Many of you guys probably have the NIV, so if it reads a little bit different, I apologize, but kind of follow with me if you can. Chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says this, But 
now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. I want you to to notice the very first thing that Paul says is the big old but right there in verse 21, which is a contrast to everything he said before. So if this righteousness is going to come, it's not going to come through some man-centered action. It's going to be different. And Paul says it is now apart from the law. The law is a ladder that no man has the ability to climb. The law simply is a thermometer. It's not a thermostat. In my house, I have a thermostat. I can adjust the temperature with it. If I'm hot, I can make it cooler. If I'm warm, I can make it colder, right? That that idea. The law is not that. It doesn't have the ability to adjust the temperature. It just tells you the temperature that's outside. It tells you, in a sense, how sinful you are. It is a mirror in all of our lives. When it says, do these things and don't do these things, we find ourselves breaking those laws, the Old Testament law that Paul talks about here, but it cannot change the condition of what is. It is simply a thermometer. And as Paul unpacks this, he goes on to say, the righteousness of God has been, in verse 21, manifested. This righteousness that God requires, the righteousness that you and I are ultimately after, that man needs, uh, it isn't ascended to. It's something that is brought down to us. It is revealed to us, meaning something or somebody outside of man provides this now for us. And you also behold it, verse 21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Aha, even though it is not earned by the law, it's witnessed by the law, meaning the idea of salvation by grace. It's nothing new. The entire Old Testament, in fact, predicts this idea. Both the law, the Old Testament law, and the prophets point to this reality. The law showed us what the penalty of the law is, but the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets in our Old Testament, they actually point to a Messiah, one who would come, who would satisfy all of these things. And it's in Christ that these things point. The entire Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus. In verse 22, Paul goes on, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction. This salvation is going to come by trusting in something. It's by faith, you'll notice in verse 22. And faith is what you do when you can do nothing else, when you have no merit on your own, when you have no ability to bring something to the table. Faith is the action that you take when you are completely bankrupt and completely hopeless. And this faith that we have in, you're going to see here in verse 22, is that you're going to rest in somebody else. And according to verse 22, What do you see in there? What is that something, or better, that someone that we are putting our faith in? What does verse 22 say? There's a name in there that's really important. Jesus Christ, thank you. I think we're all on the same page. We're all awake. We're putting our faith in this person. That's the idea. We see him now for the first time in chapter 2, and now it's being clarified here. Now it appears, he appears bringing with him salvation to all who believe and trust. Faith through Jesus Christ, verse 22 says, for all who believe, there is no distinction. Because it's by faith, because there is nothing that we do to earn or deserve this favor of God, there is no distinction. No one will be turned away. Anybody that comes with this posture of faith, trusting in God's provision of righteousness in Jesus Christ, no one will be turned away. Because in verse 23, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Again, how many humans on this planet 
have sinned. All, everyone, both in deed and in our very nature as we learned last night. This is past tense. It's already occurred. Beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden, from the very first act of disobedience, all of us, like them, have sinned. In judgment, in a sense, has already been handed down in the garden with Adam. All men are put in the same prison of condemnation because of our sin. And we have fallen short of the glory of God. That idea of fallen short of the glory of God kind of has two meanings. One is the idea that God is not impressed with us when we bring our best needs before him. That idea of fallen short of his glory, we are fallen short of maybe what he would see as necessary. But we've also fallen short of his righteous demands, the standard of God. So God is not impressed with man's best efforts because they are inadequate, and he's not impressed with uh, all that we necessarily would bring. And in verse 24, then, it goes on to say, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. You're going to notice, by the way, in this passage, there are several kind of what I would call 50-cent words, big, maybe complicated theological terms that we need to understand. And Paul says one of them here. He says, we have been justified. What does that word justified mean? It literally means to be declared righteous. It's the picture of a judge in a courtroom who has the guilty standing before him, but he declares them to be innocent, declares them to be righteous. Now, it doesn't mean that they actually are righteous, because we found out in chapter 1 through 3 that we don't have a righteousness. We are actually in and of ourselves not righteous. But we, by this judge, have been declared righteous. We are, in a sense, free to walk out of that courtroom, not because we're innocent, but because someone else has declared us innocent. And watch how this happens in verse 24. It says, we are declared innocent or justified as a gift, meaning it's without cause. It is freely given. There was nothing done to earn it. There's nothing that humankind did to deserve it. It was simply given to us by the goodness and the grace of God for us on our behalf. You and I are saved as a gift. We did nothing to do anything for it. But something still has to be paid. Do you see that there? Is our salvation free? Well, yes and no. Was it free to us? Yes. But it de- did it demand a price? Yes, absolutely. And why? what means did this gift come? Look at the end of verse 24. Through the redemption. Y'all know what that word redemption means? Paul uses a bunch of different words as he writes Galatians and Ephesians and Romans for this word redemption. There's several in our New Testament. The usual word that Paul uses for redemption means to, to buy up. Any of you guys remember going to Chuck E. Cheese as a kid? Any of you guys do that? When I went as a kid, I would immediately go in and I would play, I think it was called Ski Ball. You guys remember the ball game where you throw it in? And that thing would like crank out tickets. You remember that game? And then you would take like your hoard of tickets to the counter to the redemption counter, and you would buy with those tickets all these prizes? That's the meaning of the word here. It literally means buying a slave off the marketplace. But that's not the word redemption that Paul normally uses. That's not the one that he uses here. The word here means to pay a ransom. Here in verse 34, 24 rather, he actually adds a prefix to it, and it means to cut free. What Paul is saying is, in Christ's Death on the cross not only purchased you, but it set you free. He cut you loose and set you free from the captivity 
that you were in. So the reason that you and I can be saved is because someone else transacted a payment for us. And then after that payment actually liberated us to live a new life. It's the idea that when you buy something, you turn it loose. We were like slaves who have been purchased and then set free. Does that picture ring true in your life? Do you feel what Paul is trying to say? Christ purchased you from the the sin that you were under, and he set you free to a newness of life. Now, again, in chapter 6, as we roll through our time together this week, we're going to unpack that even more. But in a nutshell, here is its importance. Do you remember that we talked about that idea of total depravity last night, that we were all under sin? Do you remember how, like a prisoner, you could do nothing good? You were actually unable to please God? Paul says, now you can. For those of us that have accepted that gift of Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins, we are set free to serve him and to please him. Now, I want you to notice what this payment is. What was this transaction that occurred? Keep reading. He says here in verse 24, that redemption, that payment, which is in Jesus Christ. This payment isn't a what, it is a who. It is Jesus Christ. When you and I violated God through sin, we were immediately in debt. We were prisoners to sin and death, a child in the sense of the devil as the scripture paints us. And no payment in and of ourselves could get you out because we simply owed too much. Except this God made a payment for us. And the currency that he used to purchase us was his own son, Jesus Christ. This payment was purchased for us as a gift, which the judge now uses to declare us righteous so that we no longer fall short of his glory, but the righteousness of God can be found in us. Friends, does this blow your mind? It should. Is there any other religious system in the world that can do this for you? Can Buddha do this for you? No. Can Muhammad do this for you? Can any works of your own do this for you? No. It has to be something that is done on our behalf. And the beauty of Christianity says that we have a loving father who was willing to send his one and only son to pay the ultimate price for you and I that we could have the newness of life. Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if Jesus was the payment, where, by the way, was this transacted? What was the actual mechanism, the the ATM, so to speak, that God used to make this purchase? Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, there's another fancy theological word, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness Because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Let's kind of slow walk our way through this. Where was Jesus made a public display? Where did that happen? Where was Jesus publicly displayed for our sin? On the cross, that's that's Calvary, absolutely. The crucifix, in a sense, was the ATM that delivered Jesus as payment for your sins and my sins. But more specifically, what are we talking about? What happens on that cross? Is Jesus hung on that cross? What did he do? He died, correct? So the penalty for our sin was what? Death. 
So we had to die unless there was a substitute that was found who is willing to die in our place, not just any substitute, but a holy, blameless one, someone who was human just like you and me, but had never, ever violated God's law. That is the uniqueness of the Son of God. Does that human exist in our world? No. So God had to send him on our behalf. A number of years ago in the 1970s in California, there was a court case that hit public news all over the media channels. It was a pretty regular mundane thing, but because of the nature of the people that were involved, it hit the national media. There was a girl who got pulled over for a very simple traffic violation, and she had to go to court where the judge was there, and he had to rule whether she was guilty or where she was innocent. And the conundrum was this girl's judge wasn't just some random judge. It was actually her dad. This girl had to go stand before her father, who had to both uphold the righteousness of the law, where he could not simply excuse her, and yet as a dad, he had to figure out, how do I love my daughter in this moment? So she goes in now to fight this this ticket, so to speak, as her dad is the judge. And as a dad, you don't want your daughter to suffer, right? That's the heart of a father. But as a judge, you must uphold the law. So this judge is fighting this tension. Well, she's standing there before court. She is guilty as charged. She's had a speeding ticket, and she had two options. You can either spend your time in jail, or you can pay at the time, which was a $200 fine. Well, she was a broke college student, and she didn't have the money to pay that, and she certainly didn't want to spend time in jail. So you know what that judge did? He couldn't just say, oh, it's no big deal. I simply excuse your sin and just let it go. He stepped off the judge stand as his, as a as a judge, he took off his robe and he walked down as now a dad to his daughter. And he pulled out his checkbook and he wrote a $200 check on behalf of his daughter, where he became both just in upholding the righteous demands of the law, but he was also the justifier. He satisfied the requirements of the law and he did that because he desperately loved his daughter. Friends, this is a picture of the gospel. God has to uphold the demands of the law for the wages of sin is death. And yet as a loving father, he wants no one to die separated from him. So he found a way through the person of Christ to pay that demand on our behalf. And Paul now gives another aspect of what the cross provided for you and me. Look at the end of verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. That word propitiation simply means to satisfy the righteous demands. That word, by the way, that we are satisfied from or that we are, um, the, 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 the demand that God was satisfied is the wrath of God that we looked at even last night. In a sense, when that ransom was paid, God's righteous demand in the law was satisfied. The only payment that was accepted, the only currency that God said would make us right was here in the law, and it was through the person of Jesus Christ. And it had to be a payment from blood. And as Paul talks about this idea, I want to maybe give you a visual of what this means, because Paul's actually borrowing in this word propitiation, a word from our Old Testament. Uh, Will you throw up those slides for me, uh, Jared, if you don't mind? Paul is borrowing here in this very first idea, a term and a concept that comes from this. If you guys are familiar with the Old Testament, they had a system and a place where they would meet with God. The tabernacle, which is this is a recreation of in Israel, 
or the temple. And this was basically their chapel, their church. It's the place where they would come to meet with God. But it was a very um, specific system as to how they do that. One time a year, there was a high priest that would enter into this place, and he would go into a place within that tent that he was only allowed to go one time a year. And the book of Leviticus describes this process where he would take the sacrificial animal that was slayed outside on behalf of the people, he would take that blood, and then he would take it inside to a place that's called the Holy of Holies. And on that mercy seat, on this now ark, Jared, if you go to the next one, I like those words. This is the Ark of God, right? Anybody seen Indiana Jones, old school movies? This is the Ark, not the actual one, uh, but this is the Ark of God. And what the high priest would do, he would take the shed blood of this animal and he would put it on this place called the mercy seat. And underneath, by the way, inside of that Ark, you know what was in there? The Ten Commandments, the broken law of God. And the picture is, as God looks down from heaven, onto the broken law of the people that were unable to, to meet his demands. What does he see in between him and them? He sees the shed blood of another animal on this mercy seat. And that's the idea of what God is talking about here in Romans, that idea of propitiation, that when this animal's blood was spilt on their behalf, they were seen as not innocent, but they were declared innocent. They were justified for another year. Jesus, obviously, is the ultimate picture of this, that this idea of propitiation or satisfaction of God's wrath is finished. That is exactly what Jesus says on the cross, that when he died in our place, he says, it is finished. And I want you to notice how this gift is received by you and I. It says in verse 25, by faith. This is the way through which this justification, God declaring us righteous, and this satisfying of God's wrath is accepted for you and I. When you guys run downstairs on Christmas morning and you take that gift that you were given, what do you do with it? You open it, right? You tear into it, but you don't have to pay for it. You simply receive it. You enjoy all the fruits that come with it from the giver of that gift. That's the idea here. In so many ways, friends, this is too good to be true, that all of this was done on our behalf. It cost God the ultimate price, but for you and I, it's a free gift given to all who would simply, by faith, believe what God did on our behalf. And do you notice at the end of verse 25 what that was? The purpose of why God did all of this? It's just to demonstrate his righteousness. Because we, again, do not have a righteousness on our own. God was demonstrating to us. That word literally means to point out. He was demonstrating something. It's where we get our word for the index finger, that he is pointing to something in that process, that this Jesus laid down his life for us. And the whole idea of what he did was to point ultimately to him. And this question, the question that is so difficult to answer in the scriptures, how can a holy God get a violating criminal like us, sinners into heaven? This is the demonstration of how that occurs. God found a way to grant us access into heaven and yet still be righteous at the very same time. The cross of Jesus gives us that righteousness. The law demands a life for a life, for the wages of sin is death. But God in his goodness and his graciousness to us found a way to pay that price. He is both now the just and the justifier. It is a beautiful picture of what God did. And friends, I want to camp in this, and I want to sit in this again like we did last night, 
The cross demonstrates the righteousness of God and the goodness and the love of God. This is the deep magic of Narnia, so to speak, that God found a way to do this. And at the end of verse 25, we see one more reason behind God's motivation. It says, because the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That simply means all of the sins of the Old Testament, all the things that those who would walk in violation of God had done, God was patient with those. He knew one day they would be saved, but they were saved in a sense on credit, that Jesus' payment one day would come, and he was patient with all of them in in a way, all of us as well. God knew that he could look over, in a sense, those sins because one day he would send his son. And the picture of the cross is to demonstrate God's graciousness and his extreme patience with all of us while we were very much in this state. And that is why God could, in a sense, pass over the sins of the past. And now in verse 26, he concludes this idea. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, these two opposing things we have here, that God may be just, he has to execute his judgment on sin, and yet he wants to be the justifier as well. He wants to find a way to declare you and I righteous before him. And that is exactly what happened. And I want you to notice what this leads to here in verse 27. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works, not by law, but faith. Meaning, can any of us, can you and I brag about being Christians? No. We brought nothing to the table. There was no righteousness of our own, no deeds that we did to somehow earn the favor of God. So there is no boasting, in a sense, in the cross, except for the one who did it on our behalf. That is why we can look to him and him alone. And as Paul now concludes this section, he says, we maintain that man is justified. Man is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. There is nothing that mankind has ever done to make himself righteous. And this is the the core of the gospel. All of mankind, from eternity past to eternity present, to those sitting in this room right now, have done no righteous deeds, as we have said over and over and over to earn the favor of God. But what we have the ability to do is to put faith in the righteousness that was provided for us, to trust in Jesus Christ, in God's provision for our sin, and to trust that this loving God has now built a bridge, that he has, in a sense, built a way back so that you and I can mend this very much broken relationship with him. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the entire purpose and story of the entire Bible, how a loving God pursues sinners and loves them, and through the means of his son, Jesus Christ, has found a way. This is the question that I was confronted with my freshman year of college, as that guy sat across from me at a table and said, Mike, if you were to die today, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And I, again, proclaimed my own righteousness, all the things that I had done that made the good outweigh the bad. Was I sat in that seat in that moment, what I realized, what the scripture says, the honest evaluation about my life was that I have no righteousness. I have nothing to bring to the table. And what I deserve because of my misdeeds, both in my my nature and the fleshing out of those things is eternal separation from God. But God would not leave me in that place. 
And in that moment, I had to make a choice. Am I willing to trust in the provision of God in what he has given me through his son, Jesus Christ, and his payment for sin on my behalf on the cross? Or am I going to continue to trust in my own way and walk away from God and in that think that I somehow will earn the favor of God apart from him? And it is in that moment, in my freshman year of college, where I bowed my knee and I said, Lord, I'm done. I'm done pursuing these things that I thought would bring me joy, things that I thought would bring me happiness. I'm going to submit my life to you. And friends, I want to conclude by simply asking you that same question. Many of you, as we've journeyed through this text, you recognize that there's a time in your life that you've done that, that you came to the end of yourself and you recognize that you had to bow your knee to the Father and accept the provision of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But some of you, just like me my freshman year of college, have maybe wrestled with that up here. Maybe you've never even heard of this idea before. And for the first time in your life, you're being confronted with the idea that you maybe aren't as righteous or as good as you thought you were. You thought you were going to crush that math test, but in reality, you're much lower, much, uh, your view of yourself is just simply askew. And what God is asking you to do in this moment is to admit that and to say, would you be willing to trust in God's provision? When I was in the fraternity, we did a thing called a trust fall. Any of you guys ever done that? right, where you get a bunch of people behind you, maybe climb up a tree or on something high, and you turn around backwards, you put your hands down, and you're trusting that those people behind you are willing to trust you, are willing to, to catch you. Well, as I stood, as these guys, we did this on a retreat together, climbed up that tree, and I watched the first couple guys go. I realized, like, okay, in theory, that's possible, right? I, I believe that it was possible for this guy to fall and him to be caught uh, by these men that were standing at the base. And time and time again, as these guys did this, every guy was caught and brought safely down. Well, then it kind of became my turn to do this. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I see that it's possible. Like, I, I get it upstairs in my head, uh, but I, I don't know that I want to do that. Friends, that is not trust. That is not faith. That is not what the Bible means when it says putting your faith or your belief in Jesus Christ. It's not just mere mentally saying, yeah, I, I think that's possible. Faith in Jesus Christ is climbing up that tree, turning around and putting your full confidence in someone else and falling backwards into the loving arms of Christ and saying, you've got me in the midst of this. And friends, I want to give you guys an opportunity to do that this morning, to look at the gospel maybe for the very first time and to acknowledge before God, before your friends and your family, that maybe you're at a place where you need to do that. So I want to invite the worship team back on the stage one last time. And I want to do something a little bit different during this set of worship. Instead of asking you all to stand during worship, I want to ask you all to remain seated. And for those of you, as we kind of close our eyes together, as we bow our heads in worship and just process this idea, this incredible gift that has been given to us, if for the first time this morning, you are now responding to that message and you say, I want to put my full trust and my full confidence in Jesus Christ, God's provision for my sin, I want to invite you to do something that's going to take a ton of courage. I want to invite you to simply stand. While the rest of your peers remain seated, I want to invite you to mark a moment in your life where you cross that line from darkness into the light, where you walk into the loving arms of a father who is waiting for you. And if you today, right now, consider who Jesus is and put your trust in him, and if you are being led by the Spirit of God to do that during this song of worship, I want to invite you now to stand. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into worship. Father, right here, right now, 
would you do your work in the hearts of those that are processing this idea? Father, though it's incredibly complex, it is so, so simple that we are sinners in need of a gracious God. We are sinners in need of righteousness that we don't have on our own. And yet, Father, you found a way to uphold the demands of the law, which was sinless perfection. And Father, yet you found a way to pay the price for us when we could not meet those demands. Through Jesus Christ, your son, we have now found a way back to you because he laid down his life for us as a sinless substitute. And he paid the demands on our behalf. Father, would we trust in that even now? Father, would we be willing to not just believe that with our heads, but believe that with our hearts and put our full confidence in your son right now, in whose name we pray.